This is episode number 33 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. If you're in the development or DevOps space, I'm confident that you've heard of or even have been exposed to Docker, Kubernetes, virtual machines, things like that. If you haven't or you feel your skills could be improved, don't worry because this episode's got you covered. In this episode, I'm joined by Merrick Sadowski of IBM, and we talk about what all of these different technologies are and how to use them. So for example, we talk about containers, we talk about orchestrating those containers using services like Kubernetes. These are all technologies that are very relevant in the DevOps developer space, and knowing how to do this kind of stuff will greatly benefit your career. So this episode is going to be a first of its kind when it comes to the Polyglot Developer Podcast. So this is actually a two-part episode. So what you're listening to now is part one, and at a later date, you will be able to listen to part two, which covers more or less the same kind of subject material, but it's going to be on different topics that are relevant towards this particular subject. With that said, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I'm with Merrick Sadowski, and we're going to be talking about containers, Kubernetes, and various things that kind of fit in with that kind of realm of DevOps. But before we get into the core subject of this particular episode, I want to give Merrick a chance to introduce himself. So how are you doing, Merrick? Uh, hello, everybody. Um, great uh, being with you guys. Uh, my name is Mike Sadowski, as uh, Nick uh, was, uh, was telling you in the beginning. And uh, I am developer advocate with IBM. I am entrepreneur and um, a startup founder. Um, and uh, it's exciting to be uh, here with you. Uh, I'm speaking from uh, from uh, eastern part of uh, San Francisco, so little suburbs, and uh, it's uh, pretty amazing over here. A lot of sun. So, what kind of stuff do you like to do in your free time, Merrick? Uh, and this could be outside of work. It could be in work. It's it's totally whatever you enjoy. Um, as a startup founder, there is no much. Uh, time left for for hobbies and uh, my family always tries to uh, hijack any free time i have so um, so first of all i have kids and uh, and and wife and we enjoy um, going out together to various places uh, we like going to mountains and skiing and uh, fortunately enough um, we have uh, mountains over here and a lot of snow uh, these days so uh, so we went already once for um for a trip to ski and, um, and snowboard. I'm a snowboarder, so I enjoy snowboarding. But as I said, it's um, uh, time hijacked by my family. So <laughs> mostly I'm trying to, to stay with them. And in the summer, it's the same. Uh, we try to do um, going out more to uh, the seaside or ocean side over here. And uh, if I have opportunity, I'm trying to run away from them and do diving. I'm a scuba diver. So this is the other hobby I have for the summer. So. I have two hobbies uh, for uh, summer and winter. And in between, I find some time to relax my back. And, and I'm doing this, uh, um, participating in the tournaments of semi, semi-contact uh, fighting tournaments of karate. So it's pretty devastating hobby, but it keeps me straight. And uh, sometimes I am a little bit um, torn and beaten up. But uh, other than that, I feel great. Nice. I assume that when you're snowboarding, you're snowboarding in Lake Tahoe, or do you have another location of choice? Um, Lake Tahoe is very beautiful. So uh, all my trips when I was uh, here in California were made in States. I were made uh, only to this part of Sierras. Uh, yeah. But in addition, in addition to, uh, uh, to Tahoe, um, I used to uh, snowboard and ski in Europe. So I visited a couple of places over there. and. Um, it's a little bit on the cheaper side than over here, but uh, but the oh, yeah. snow is everywhere the same. So awesome. It's, it's yeah. very expensive over here. I, I've never been elsewhere, though, um, but Tahoe's is pretty expensive. Uh, so, I mean, what kind of technical projects do you like working on? So, I mean, what are you working on at IBM, um, would you say, or um, are you able to share? Yeah. Yeah, this, that's, a, that's a good... Um, uh, 
good approach to uh, what I like to work on in IBM? And, uh, and the answer is very tricky. So as I said in the beginning, I am a startup founder. I am um, working or I founded a startup doing robotics. So anything connected to robots, uh, IoT, uh, managing robots with AI is is falling into the ba basket or 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 the sweet spot of mine that I like to do. So all the projects I am engaging now is to uh, bring cap capabilities and capacity, uh, co compute capacity to, to robots, and um, and I'm trying to learn as much as it's possible to manage IoT from the uh, from the cloud, uh, how to connect to IoT from mobile devices and how to empower IoT uh, using AI. So these are the things I love to, to do. I, I don't have too much exposure. Let's say I have 30% of my time spent on uh, working on the um, processing on the edge, but the other 70% is uh, dedicated to the project uh, with DevOps and, um, and um, uh, deploying solutions uh, to containers managing containers through uh, Kubernetes, uh, using Istio, and, um, and doing this also in an enterprise-grade way uh, with Red Hat OpenShift, which is, uh, I think, topic for, uh, for today. So how to do Kubernetes and uh, containers the enterprise way. So. Yeah, before we jump into OpenShift, before we jump into Kubernetes, let's maybe take a step back and um, get an overview of just container technology, because we have, at least I don't remember, I don't think we've had an episode on containers for this particular podcast. So you maybe you want to give the audience kind of a background. Yeah, that's a um, um, that's very intriguing topic. So I, I will give you a um, little bit overview of what happened with me. And this kind of uh, experience could uh, bring you or make you familiar with, uh, with what happened in the industry. So I left IT industry to my startup about 2011. And when I returned 2014, the landscape completely changed. And um, from uh, on-prem type of the businesses that, that were delivered uh, till 2011, at least in IBM, everything changed to cloud. And cloud is powered uh, by various uh, technologies, but one of most important ones is, um, is uh, container-based technology. And uh, for containers um, and the previous uh, kind of landscape, uh, there was an evolution. It wasn't a revolution approach. So evolution started, um, we can start from the bare metal. So some companies, um, among, among others, uh, Amazon, were providing us with the free, I mean, not free, but, um, but the compute space based on the bare metal. Bare metal means uh, simple computers that uh, or, or shared uh, shared spaces on the computers that you could use, uh, but you you were responsible for installing all the hardware. I mean, all the hardware drivers and and uh, operating system and so on. So a lot of time, uh, or a lot of time, you would spend just on installing the the operating system and then uh, managing your applications. But you had to like manage your hardware as well, and then. Um, came the time when people started to use um, uh, virtual machines. And virtual ma ma machines allowed you to forget about hardware. So there was this abstraction la layer between hardware and, and virtual machine that was abstracting away all the hardware. So you had virtualized hard hardware, and you were just taking care of uh, installing your operating system uh, in a virtual machine without the drivers to hardware because they were taken care of. And you would just um, play with your application there. So that was a, a huge improvement. And that happened till uh, this kind of style of, uh, of development happened till end of uh, 2010. And slowly, 2011, 2013, people started to use containers. Containers were available before, before that time. I don't want to say that they, they were not there. It's even people are looking to 1970s where uh, there were some types of the containers available at that time. But um, containers as we know them today uh, started uh, in, uh, in the beginning of, 19, uh, of 2010, 11, 12, 13. And um, they started and they brought the abstraction layer a little bit higher. So as I said, virtual machines were bringing hypervisor that was abstracting away the, the hardware portion. Now uh, containers, with help of the container engine, uh, 
um, they were abstracting away operating system. So, so now um, when you deploy the container, you just think about uh, your application and 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 your kind of the, the server uh, application server that you play your application on. You don't think about operating system. So suddenly, industry realized they can load much more uh, applications on the same hardware. So now it's more efficient because you drop down, you drop away uh, all the stuff connected to operating system in a virtual machine. Virtual machines stop to be uh, loaded. I mean, still loaded if you talk about virtual machine, but your your uh, container is not having operating system. It just have the, the containers has the, uh, the the libraries, the binaries that are necessary for uh, for running your application, but it can be very thin and um, and just uh, tailored to to what you need. So it became very small, and everybody started to use containers, and that was a huge um, explosion of containers and. Um, and one of the things people started to realize in one uh, one moment that when you start with one container doing one microservice, uh, everything uh, plays okay, and you can kind of manage that. But when you start to go to dozen of um, of containers, it starts to get a um, little bit uh, uncomfortable. And uh, when you reach even higher level, you might realize that it's very hard to contain and maintain everything. So they started to look into the uh, ways to manage and um, and uh, and orchestrate your container deployment. And it also shifted one uh, one another aspect uh, into the microservices and the mesh-based application applications and microservices. Um, in uh, uh, in middle of two thousands. People would speak about SOA, which is service-oriented architecture. So everything was uh, service-oriented. You would create the service bus, and you would have uh, stuff like that. And um, people would create containers. Um, in 2010, 11, 13, and 14, people started to speak a lot about microservices and connecting uh, RESTful APIs together, creating applications. And modern applications are built exactly like this like a mesh of uh, of uh, microservices talking to each other so that was a shift and uh, and the shift was connected with uh, containers and managing containers on on a scale uh, through orchestration and um, and there are various techniques leading farther and farther away uh, but um, the leading company out of this um, uh, scope the one of the enablers so uh, one of the leaders for uh, for making the containerization of the application uh, possible was uh, was Docker, and Docker, as an open source um, provider of containers, started uh, this, this process. Uh, they were open source, very easy to use, and um, and they did uh, the standardization that was required to, to go through this path. Then uh, other companies came with the orchestrations, or orchestration mechanisms that became uh, very popular and gained traction, uh, traction enough to become leaders. And, um, and then others came and said, orchestration is needed. That's the standard. Let's use it. So, so, so that's kind of the story, um, starting with my experiences uh, back in years 2000. And then uh, after. Coming back to the industry in 2014, I realized um, everybody's speaking about Docker. Uh, they are doing uh, containers uh, uh, and they are orchestrating everything. So that's the change of the landscape I, I knew from, from uh, 2000 to 2010. So, so I have a few questions around some of the stuff that you talked about. So the first sure. thing with virtual machines. So I, I get that there's a, probably a reason for why you might want to do bare metal still. And I get why there's uh, a reason to do containers because they're so lightweight. Is there still a reason to use virtual machines, do you think? Uh, um, that's a very knowledgeable question, very, very wisely put. <laughs> there is uh, still reason for all of these things. And um, sure. I will give you a couple, a couple examples. And, um, and you can place yourself on the idea where sure. you want to, uh, what you want to use, and uh, so 
um, let's start with the startup kind of environment. So when you're yeah. a startup and you have just uh, one technical guy, one business guy, one lawyer, and the crazy person who is uh, doing um, all the connections with the salespeople and the VCs. So we have like a four people team and you would like to build this next big thing and, uh, and, and change the world. And, but you have just one developer and, um, and you have this, all the ideas. So this developer would like to bring some new business functionality and probably uh, it would be um, leveraging the cloud in some way. So, so in order to deliver this with one person, probably you would even know, not go to uh, containers, you would use uh, serverless, which is another aspect and maybe not to talk about. I, sure. I just want to hang very, very high in the abstraction level. level. Then yeah. you step down and, and you say, uh, we will do this uh, container-based application with the, um, with the scope of the, uh, of the management orchestration of the containers because we are going to deploy hundreds of the containers and it's going to be a huge application. We work for the enterprise and this is the way we, we do it. So there is, um, uh, it's going to be lean, but still it's going to, um, to be kind of flexible. But you lose a lot of uh, flexibility because you are not uh, digging into the operating system capabilities. You just use the kind of out-of-the-box operating system based uh, containers. Sure. Um, when, when you go a little bit down and you want to have a little bit more of control about operating system version, you have maybe licenses of the legacy applications uh, that are, let's say, based on the uh, some stable but older releases, probably you would stay with the, uh, the operating system based uh, uh, virtual machines. So you would, uh, you would deploy this old style and you have this legacy application. So there's a reason to use it, in fact. So you have legacy software, nobody's monolithic a lot of times. And there's also the anti-pattern of uh, not, um, uh, not making everything uh, container and microservice based because maybe somebody created this monolithic application and it's uh, worth to keep it this way because it does it, its job and, um, and uh, that's it. But then, <clears throat> It requires a lot of uh, maintenance and administration. So you would have administrators for operating system. You would have additional um, uh, administrators for these application servers. And then you would have administrators for virtual machines. So you'd have a lot of administrators on top of your um, development team. So starting uh, with uh, one person, uh, gal or guy uh, who is responsible for, uh, for your startup, for technical stuff. Uh, with the serverless architecture, then having a couple of people working in an agile team with Scrum or whatever, uh, building new applications on top of the containers and managing them with DevOps. You move to, the, uh, to this group of people and, uh, and administrators, and you have these developers, and they are already two, at least two or three teams that are working on your application. So it's becoming larger, uh, larger more uh, challenging in management. Um, group of people that man manages this VM-based uh, uh, applications. And then let's say you move to the um, lower to the, to the bare metal and you would like to use bare metal uh, applications and what, what would be the reason? So for example, you are, uh, you are a person who is uh, streaming games over internet, uh, 5G networks, and, uh, and you are using somebody else's computer, so your, your computers in the cloud deliver uh, the best experience to the gamers and uh, you want to use the, the hardware uh, in the best possible way or you use AI and you want to provide the customer with the uh, GPUs or or you want to provide them with uh, a lot of experiences based on the hardware that you bought and you are now uh, virtualizing for them or maybe not virtualizing but you are streaming the games for them so you do the, all the compute for the, for, for the people and you are using the hardware in the best way possible. So you have the huge team that even sits on the, on the driver for particular um, uh, 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 graphic card. You have the team that is responsible for the memory and the storage and they are optimizing everything and networking people. So if you have, on addition to the team that was before just for, uh, Keeping your monolithic application and uh, and maintaining the operating system and, and the application server and application, uh, you add also people who are responsible for the hardware for all the stuff that is responsible for 
for keeping the application running. So, um, so that's uh, that's the place for the for the bare metal. So you have kind of uh, steps uh, in which you would um, uh, you would use uh, either bare metal and uh, as I said, uh, gaming or or AI based data uh, uh, analytics services using AI. That that would be the ones that would use bare metal, and then you climb the ladder to very simple systems, uh, but um, concentrated on the business output uh, without looking into the uh, details of the system, so serverless kind of aspect. And, uh, and then you have also uh, uh, container-based de deployments. So, so you have the, this, um, this spectrum of, uh, of availability of the system and business logic and uh, easiness of using them versus the uh, very detailed and, um, and down-to-ground um, possibility of manipulating your hardware so so but very uh very time consuming and uh um and uh, and requiring a lot of um a lot of work of administrators so so spectrum of uh of um, capabilities uh, is responsible for what you would choose as a startup sure. or your own company sure so previously you mentioned that uh, as containers started to get introduced, uh, people started having more and more microservices and it became kind of, I guess, a hassle to manage more than, uh, more than just a few containers. So that kind of leads us into the orchestration that you mentioned. So what, what does that look like? What does that mean when it comes to kind of the DevOps world to orchestrate containers? So um, I will start with the manual way. So uh, let's say, you create a service that's going to translate um, uh, translate um, uh, text. So very simple, uh, simple application. It's going to translate uh, every string into the other language. And let's say you have uh, in California the most used language, except for um, for English, is Spanish probably. So so you would have this very basic service. Suddenly. Somebody is going to use it uh, for German, and uh, because they are using it in Europe, so you would deploy a couple of services uh, um, for Germany, and uh, you would keep them alive. So you start start to have two versions of the same service running there in, in your space, and suddenly more and more people would start to use it. Uh, you start to tune them up, and you grow into the large um, large deployment. And every time you you bring a new version, you have to kind of um, First, test it in your production how it works, and then you want to deploy it. Uh, you want to uh, see if it deploys and it starts. In in a deployment phase, as administrator, you you know a little bit uh, that it should work uh, because your uh, people in a, in a development they told you it's working. We tested it out, but you know after deploying, you 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 see that maybe they are crashing, so you want to uh, ro roll them back, and and um, and that's kind of the the way that it happens. So you deploy a new version uh, after the one that crashes. And so you have version one, version two, version three that's working, version two, you roll back. So you start to have like a lot of, a lot of it, like you said, hassle with, uh, with managing versions. Then you have the number of deployments. You know that people are going to translate uh, a lot of text uh, and, and send, for example, wishes to counterparts during some holidays. So you prepare to deploy more, and you don't want to have this more of the containers all the time because it's costly, and uh, and you can uh, fall into this uh, trap of being super um, uh, flexible and having a lot of uh, compute power available. But on the other hand, your bill is going to be huge, so you want to just optimize it just for this peak that's going to happen. So, so you want to deploy a little bit more of containers uh, during the peak hours, so you do it and. Uh, and you just schedule them uh, during the specific specific time. So so it's scheduling, it's um, it's maintaining the versions. Then you can, let's say, you would like to uh, do a health check every uh, every time. Check if the application is running. If not, you would like to restart them. So if you have like three uh, containers, it's easy. You can you can run script maybe, or or you can even test it yourself. But if you have one hundred of of Containers, it's very hard to do health check yourself. Even if you have a team of five people maintaining 100 of containers, it might might be tricky. And then, and then you you have this huge huge deployment, and you know it's uh, it becomes even challenging to kind of um, 
migrated to the um, second environment. So let's say because of the regulations, um, uh, you would like to keep one deployment for states, one deployment for Europe to stay in the Eurozone. And uh, after Brexit that happened, uh, you would like to also deploy something in, uh, in Great Britain. So such deployments become really tricky if you don't have um, automation for that. And um, so all these things that I, I, I mentioned um, are done through the orchestration uh, mechanism of, a, of a software or tool like Kubernetes. So, so that's, uh, that's, that's the reason. When you start with one, there is no problem. When you have hundreds, it's so hard even like a huge team is, might have a problem to manage it by hand. So, so let me maybe ask this, and, and this may be a silly question because I'm not uh, as, as fluent in the DevOps world as you are, but when it comes to uh, manually orchestrating this stuff, so spinning up new containers as the demand increases, uh, getting uh, these containers uh, reversioned with the latest updates or deploying them in certain countries, it's more than just deploying, right? You have to worry about I assume load balancing and routing and all kinds of other stuff in addition. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a, that's a very a very good and it's not silly at all. So, uh, so Nick, it's a, it's a great uh, great question and um, and I so would I would put it put it exactly like this. So you have to worry not only on deploying but also maintaining, uh, checking the logs, uh, taking care of uh, of uh, redistribution, fallbacks. Um, and health checks, so you have to like kind of uh, manage uh, this application all the time. It's a um, little bit like a, like a having a, a router in home for your Wi-Fi. Uh, when you have just one router in your home, it's very easy. Your, somebody in your home is going to scream, "Ah, the router is! I don't! I cannot watch my favorite uh, streamed show because uh, internet is not working." Your in my case, my kids are screaming, screaming that we cannot play games. We don't see others yeah. on, on uh, Fortnite. But when you have just one, it's easy. When you are in the work environment and you have like hundreds of, of those, even thousands um, of those, you need to have the tool that's going to tell you, you need the upgrade, you need the backup, you need to uh, uh, do the maintenance, you have to restart the, the, uh, the router. So the same is with, the, uh, with containers. If it's so, just one, it's very easy. Yeah. I'm assuming that Kubernetes handles all of this, or at least most of it, right? Maybe you want to sh start diving into what Kubernetes is and, and how this really can make your life, uh, hopefully, a lot easier, right? Yeah, sure. So um, there, were, um, there were four leading, um, uh, leading technologies to, to, that, that were doing um, uh, orchestrations. Um, um, when you started with Docker, probably there was a Docker swarm. A lot of people were were sitting just on the Docker swarm that was doing orchestration that was suited uh, very well for the small deployments. This is what I was uh, I was told, and that's the gut guts feeling of uh, of everybody um, using it. And then um, some of the deployments that were um, uh, they were using they were using Marathon or or, or Mesos. And these these were the, the deployments that um, uh, that people were using, and they were taking care of, uh, let's say, uh, various aspects of uh, of containers. And then suddenly appeared uh, Kubernetes, started and used by by Google, and um, it was uh, provided uh, uh, as an open source. And um, Linux Foundations uh, Foundation was taking care of all the extensions that. That were being done. It was uh, uh, concentrated around automation of entire uh, deployment or orchestration of the um, of the containers being deployed in the uh, in the orchestration orchestrated environment. And a lot of companies started to use it as the as the good benchmark for orchestration. So so if you look at the uh, years starting 2014, 16, 18. Kubernetes gained a lot of traction, and uh, those people who were not using um, containers, container orchestration in the beginning, they didn't join other groups. They mainly uh, went to use uh, Kubernetes as the leading technology. So, so you have this um, uh, huge stream of of new people coming to use uh, Kubernetes from those that were not. Um, 
not using an orchestration uh, because majority majority in 2016 were just doing manual uh, manual orchestration of the of the uh, containers. But if somebody started to use containers after 2018, mostly it was uh, based on the Kubernetes. And now Kubernetes is having majority of the uh, it seems of the market. This is what what I see on the on the various uh, surveys uh, and. Um, and Kubernetes is responsible for for those things that I I shared with you. Let me let me kind of uh, rephrase it a little bit uh, more. So let's let's start with the automation. So you can uh, you can deploy your containers in automatic way using YAML files, so text-based files. Very easy to uh, to write, very clear. So so these are the files that people are using for that, and. Um, and uh, so you can deploy your container. You can specify the uh, the names of the uh, of the pods. That's the structure. That's the basic uh, component of the um, of the deployment. So pod that hosts the, uh, the application as a container with defined um, IP table and, and routing and some some connections to the uh, to, uh, to the uh, to the storage. Then you have uh, services that manage pods. So pod as a basic deployment element, having a, 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 an application in a service uh, element of the of the uh, Kubernetes, you have the elements that are responsible for communication with outside and inside. So they are responsible for routing, um, for load balancing, and so on. So, so you have these uh, two elements that are very familiar. In every every deployment, you have service and you have you have pod that hosts the application and pod lives on the node node which is the uh, um, hardware I call it the hardware it's a it's a cluster element the node of the uh, that you use for the deploying the pods on on top of it so that's where you have the compute power and uh, like. Uh, you would use it for uh, for storing your pods over there. So you would have the capacity of, let's say, uh, the simple, simplest element would have, for example, four. Maybe it's not the simplest, but one of the most used is four CPU virtual CPUs, so four cores, and uh, and you would have some memory um, attached to these four cores. Let's say sixteen gigabytes of RAM. So that's that's your node. On such a node, you could deploy a couple of. Uh, uh, a dozen of, of pods, and um, there's also a strategy how to do it the most efficient way. Some people are saying uh, pod lives on one node, but some people are saying it's not efficient. Let's load everything on one node. But then there is a, a fallback issues. You don't want to have everything on one one node, so probably it's a middle way is the best to have a couple nodes to host one application uh, for a rollback procedure. So first is deployment. So I more, more or less arrange for you the view that you would have a small pod on which you have application. You have a service um, service element on which you deploy um, uh, information about how the application the application in a pod is communicating with the world or how world is communicating with the application. And then you have a uh, you have a. Uh, a a physical node that, that is responsible for hosting the, the pods. So you have this this uh, this basic architecture. And now, next step is uh, to work and deploy the application. So when you deploy application and you have version one, so you can define, oh, this is the version one. Um, I would like to now deploy version 1.1. 1 .1. So uh, let's, let's try to do it. Um, so you deploy version 1.1. 1 .1. You have a, a health check uh, embedded in the YAML file. So there is, for example, you are you would probe the application after some time uh, if the application is uh, responding. If not, it means the application is broken. So your uh, Kubernetes cluster would not allow you to uh, deploy it, um, and it would roll back the the, um, the upgrade. So the upgrades and uh, and deployments are being automatic for uh, for for your um, uh, for your containers in a in a Kubernetes Kubernetes world. So so that's the second um, second second uh, second stage. Um, the the third stage uh, that you would use it for 
uh, it's you could call it a self-healing. So uh, you would have this as I as I mentioned before in the in the uh, in the deployment of the new version uh, when you have um, uh, you deploy the uh, the version you have uh, you have information or oh, um, your container broke it's not responding so after health check uh, uh, returns to you information I am not healthy um, container uh, Kubernetes would restart the, the container. So um, now you have the process, you, you know how to deploy, you have the architecture, how you deploy the application, you could kind of uh, define it. Uh, you try to deploy and you, you, uh, a new version, but you had a rollback. Uh, you have health check of the existing application, it's breaking from time to time, so you restart the container, so it's self-healing. So now you can uh, roll out a new application, and when it's successful, all the old containers would be uh, closed and uh, new containers would uh, would take um, gradually would take over the the load. So so that's pretty amazing because it's done automatically and it saves you a lot of time. Then you would have the um, load balancing and service discovery. So these are the, the two things that um, usually happen uh, when your application is um, uh, is performing. You would have, uh, uh, for example, ingress as a load balancer that would. Uh, um, Distribute the load to uh, and maintain the uh, connectivity uh, with the with the containers and so on. And um, and final thing that that you you could uh, you could kind of take care of uh, or um, Kubernetes is taking care of is a secret management. So um, you don't want to put the file with all the uh, API keys and uh, secret tokens and stuff like that you would uh, load them uh, to the, the, the in the deployment of the system to the kubernetes as a secrets and those secrets you would um, would pass over but they would not be visible to uh, in the system so let's say um, despite the fact we 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 run the containers in the protected environment but if someone hijacks one of the pods and uh, goes into the container itself and ssh to Container, they would not find anything, uh, um, anything about uh, the secret pa uh, passwords or secrets or, or tokens, and um, because they would be passed to entire cluster uh, in the Kubernetes uh, deployment. So that's uh, that's that's like um, steps in a ladder what we would use. But um, there are a lot of things that are not covered by Kubernetes, and and we can discuss that as well. So uh, what people came up with in order to, to help such a, um, such a structure to, to grow. So I, I have a few questions based on what you said again. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned being able to roll back um, your, mm -hmm. your containers because you gave the example of if, you're, if your cluster is not in good health, um, the, mm -hmm. the deploy of a new version may not work successfully and it'll roll back, right? Mm -hmm. um, this kind of sounds like um, it'd be great if these are all stateless containers, which I, I I hear a lot of mixed things when it comes to whether or not containers should be stateless or have state. Um, what what kind of stuff are people doing when it comes to databases in yeah. Kubernetes and containers? So, I mean, do you kind of avoid using those kind of uh, services in a Kubernetes cluster or how would that go? Uh, that's... Uh, so, so you touched base with the with the most um, uh, most important aspect of Kubernetes. Uh, containers in Kubernetes world are uh, this is what I experienced most are treated as the uh, um, stateless um, ephemeral kind of um, objects. Um, maybe not too ephemeral, but still ephemeral enough. Uh, that means they don't keep the state. The uh, because of the nature of, of, uh, of Kubernetes clusters, you would spin this um, uh, business logic inside of the container. And if you want to pass some information, probably what you would use, you would use um, um, software as a service. So database would be software as a service provided to you, uh, to your containers, and you would feed um, into the uh, infrastructure uh, software as a service infrastructure that would uh, store everything and it would deploy. And um, um, I noticed that there is a fear uh, in uh, which, which uh, various companies that don't want to provide uh, uh, 
databases uh, in a uh, in in a container world. They want to just provide you with uh, with um, uh, service uh, software as a service. And the reason is when you de deploy containers, you would kind of uh, you would have to define your clusters in a very specific way. So it would be wouldn't be uh, so agile, uh, you wouldn't be able to just move them around. You would have to deploy it in such a way that it would really have the wired, uh, very well uh, defined uh, storage uh, for for databases, which the which the way to to duplicate it and um, move it across various regions. So it's it's kind of um, uh, as I told you before, uh, this comparison and the steps you would take uh, to make applications uh, more in the uh, virtual. Uh, in the uh, VMs or or more in the uh, uh, or more in the containers, you would uh, you would want to have a swift uh, business logic inside inside of containers, which which would be more ephemeral uh, and stateless. But stateful applications needs this connection to the uh, to the storage, for example. So you would need to define them and store them in a very specific location. It's not like you can uh, bring up um, clusters without having a, a like thinking about this um, uh, structure the physical structure and all the containers and aspects with the containers is like this very easy way to uh, build them up with uh, with just standard amount of the of the storage without going into the um the storage space like really huge amounts of the of the storage that would be needed for example for the databases and and manipulating the hardware or 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 the storage uh, racks to really respond to you in a most efficient way so um so uh, as you said and it's very good observation uh, that containers are very mostly state stateless and um and when you want to store the information manipulate data and use it um across uh, various um, applications uh, you would use database that is provided for you as a software as a service and there are various databases uh, real-time databases like redis that you would use for this uh, or relational databases like mongodb so you would use uh, um, uh, this type of the uh, of the application that you would use um, in, uh, in various locations sure that makes sense so um, and, and I'll, I'll say this right now. I think that, uh, we have a lot of material on this podcast and I think we should do a part two, um, for this <laughs> as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't want to so call it quits yet on this episode. Um, there, but there is a lot that we wanted to cover and we're definitely not going to get to it all in this episode. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and, and I have a few more questions and then we'll wrap this up and, and uh, we'll, we'll try to schedule something because I think this is great information that, uh, the listeners are going to be. Um, provided. But uh, when it comes to Kubernetes, so you mentioned, uh, and this is going back to uh, deploying, um, people People tend to need orchestration when they deploy lots of containers because it's it's difficult to manage. Is there a time, like, what's that magic number before you decide, hey, I've got too many containers, I need, to, I need something to orchestrate them? Versus, uh, hey, Kubernetes might be overkill. I don't. Maybe I don't need Kubernetes yet. Is there a magic number? Uh, that's that's a tricky question. Uh, I will try to uh, kind of um, uh, uh, respond. Um, there is a fashion uh, yeah. in Silicon Valley, and people are referring to um, the the scenarios. And I, when I read a lot of. Uh, blog posts and uh, information on, on the on the internet and discuss it with uh, with colleagues in the uh, in devops um, i was told that if you have a do dozen so handful number of containers uh, and you started with docker so uh, people tend to uh, stick to the technology and provider that was um, providing you with, with this technology so they would go with the docker swarm and um and that was kind of the approach i learned from a lot of people and um and so dozen dozen of of containers handful number of containers would probably not lead you to uh, to use overkill which is kubernetes however when you have this uh, uh 
view in the future, so you can predict and plan that in the future you are going to have deployments of hundreds of, uh, of microservices based on containers, which is very easy to do because you can uh, deploy, as I said, just a micro microservice from, for translation, and you can just spin a couple dozen of those, and then you add on top of that billion containers and so on. So you can really easily surpass uh, this couple dozen of the of the containers. So when you start to uh, uh, climb the number of containers to hundreds, uh, first hundred, uh, it means you really need of something of more power, and that would be uh, Kubernetes. And and in this point, when you have the decision between one or the other, there is a third decision uh, to be made. Um, and some companies are making this decision as well. So I just want to give you a little bit of the uh, maybe view if we want to have the, the, the next, uh, next episode of this uh, interview. Um, people are starting to think, I work in a, uh, in a bank. I work in this reputable com company. And um, uh, forgive me, but Kubernetes is just open source. Um, and uh, who is going to provide me with the maintenance for that? Um, and there are a couple of companies that would raise their hand. And one of the companies uh, that has a long history of providing maintenance to open source uh, platforms um, is Red Hat. So Red Hat, I remember from, uh, from my uh, early days, in um, early fir first years in, um, in the IT industry, they were providing um, maintenance to the uh, Linux distribution. So they had Linux, uh, Red Hat, Enterprise Linux. And a lot of companies that wanted to use open source um, uh, uh, operating system, they, they didn't want to choose, for example, IBM's AIX or uh, HP Unix. They would go, no, we want to use uh, this platform and we will use Linux, but Linux was maintenance. So we would choose Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, the same is happening with Kubernetes. And, um, and Kubernetes, if you choose to use Kubernetes and technologies around Kubernetes for orchestration, you might want or you, you would be tempted to use Red Hat OpenShift, which is just um, the, in, on the very high abstraction level. It's Kubernetes with, uh, with maintenance and few added uh, well-curated uh, technologies that, that would make your life easier. So, so um, between uh, Docker Swarm, that is open source uh, way of doing uh, Kubernetes in the Swarm, um, uh, maybe not Kubernetes, Docker in the swarm. So, uh, so Docker in a, in a, in orchestra with the or orchestration, and Kubernetes when you have uh, Docker or or this or such uh, 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 containers deployed in a, in a large uh, lar large uh, uh, large number. In between uh, and for both, you can use um, a managed orchestration with with OpenShift, which is the version of Kubernetes. Uh, uh, origin Kubernetes distribution. Um, it's like um, uh, Red Hat to CentOS, a kind of um, uh, 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 relevance. Uh, relevance. So, so it's the same kind of concept uh, that makes everything easier. And um, so there is a number about hundred, ten to hundred, uh, when you want to, to think about Kubernetes versus, let's say, Docker Swarm or do it manually. Uh, and then there's OpenShift if you, for example, work in the enterprise environment and you think, uh, I need some maintenance and some support in running Kubernetes and I am not relying on, uh, on just open, open source and open community to, suppo to support my, my bugs in my uh, uh, core business, core, uh, core business um, uh, systems. Sure. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, so yeah, so on this next episode, if you, as long as you're willing for, for doing a part two of orchestration with Kubernetes and containers, um, I, well, how do you feel about talking about what IBM is doing and, uh, more on OpenShift? Yeah. So, um, I think, I think that's the great idea. I, I would love to, to continue a couple aspects of, uh, of Kubernetes and we could compare Kubernetes and, uh, challenges, uh, of Kubernetes, how to make it even uh, even easier. Uh, so how to use Istio, uh, which is also open source project, uh, spinned or or uh, or initiated or founded by uh, Google, IBM, and um, and Lyft. So you will hear maybe a little bit about that. And also, I would give you a perspective how it's easy, 
uh, or what is the difference and where is the difference between Kubernetes and OpenShift? Because we are talking about the same thing, but a little bit um, uh, encapsulated. So, so that would be yeah. kind of uh, my approach. Dude, that sounds that sounds great, and I'm I'm looking forward to having uh, the next episode real soon. Um, so yeah, it it was great talking to you on this episode, Merrick, uh, regarding uh, Kubernetes and and Docker and getting a, a kind of a history lesson on virtual machines and bare metal and things like that. Um, so I'll I'll we'll see you on the next episode then. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to it, and maybe I should invite my son who is uh, learning about. Um, he's 13 years it. old and. And uh, his aspect of looking into the orchestration is coming from games. So he always tells me, I don't know what pink means, but uh, I am glitching in this game. So, you know, this young gen generation is uh, experiencing what we are taught about or res response time and, uh, and deployment and availability of the system. And yep. uh, they live it. And for them, it's just a childhood. And for us, it's a, it's a work environment. So. So maybe yeah. I should uh, bring my son over here. As Would well. love it, man. Would love it. All right. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and Nick, I'm looking forward to have uh, a next episode with you. And uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope you were able to find this episode beneficial in terms of learning about virtual machines, Docker, Kubernetes, and how they all come together in the modern application development world and DevOps world. Like we previously mentioned, this is part one of a two-part podcast series. So we're actually going to have Merrick come back, and we're going to be talking about more Kubernetes, how IBM is using it or distributing it, as well as how OpenShift fits into this mix. So if you enjoyed this particular episode and want to learn more on the subject, definitely tune in for part two of the episode when it releases. If you're listening to this episode from iTunes, Pocket Cast, some network that allows for ratings and reviews, it would mean a lot to me if you went in and left it a five-star rating and maybe even said something nice about the episode or the show in general in the form of a review. If you're looking for more great content, head over to thepolyglotdeveloper.com. So that's the actual blog that goes with this particular podcast. It has a lot of written content, a lot of video content, some courses, Overall, good material when it comes to learning about development and DevOps and related. And that concludes episode number 33.